Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $899. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Since the January 6th storming of the Capitol, Washington, D.C. has devolved into a city under siege. With the concrete barriers, razor wire, and presence of National Guard troops, the cradle of Western democracy is nowadays more reminiscent of a heavily fortified bunker inside a war zone. It's also a daily reminder of the terrifying and senseless violence that swept through Congress that day. Smashing windows and beating police officers over the head with fire extinguishers. A bloodthirsty mob attacked the Capitol and invaded this Congress last Wednesday. And while President Biden's address to the nation has given me hope that we are at least emerging from the darkness of the past four years, or at least seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, I can't help but feel that there is some unfinished business. What's happening right now in Washington is simply not normal. I want people to remember how they feel watching these images of the United States Capitol being taken over uh, and, and this, these clear acts of sedition and violence and terrorism by Trump supporters because there's going to be an attempt to whitewash and pretend this didn't happen. Last week's arrest of Federico Klein, the former Trump State Department appointee on charges of assaulting police, trespassing and obstructing Congress, illustrates how Trump's toxic rhetoric went far beyond the MAGA horde and included those closest to Trump world. 
It will undoubtedly reveal more insidious connections between right-wing extremists and the administration. The president, remember, told Proud Boys in the fall, stand back and stand by. Proud Boys are now involved and, and identified in this event and charged. Oath Keepers, who also happen to be participating and connecting with presidential allies, were heading up to the Capitol. Even so, inside Congress, where scores of lawmakers, Republican and Democrat, hid for their lives, there is a movement now afoot to move past the moment. Conservative activists, media personalities, and elected officials are seeking to rewrite the story of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, hoping to undermine the clear picture of the attack that has emerged from video and photo evidence, law enforcement officials, journalistic accounts, and the testimonials of the rioters themselves that a pro-Trump mob incited by the former president's false claims of a stolen election stormed the seat of American government to keep Trump in power through violent means. But now, the story has begun to mutate. We really don't know who is behind this. I guess you could call these, uh, for lack of a better word, Antifa-like tactics. We don't know if Antifa is out there. I saw the beginning of the march and it seemed, you know, pretty non-conspicuous. You're going to see that 99% of this was all peaceful and a handful of yeah. folks, and again, we've got to get to the bottom of who they are, who they're representing, decided to try and kick the doors down. If Antifa was there, we need to root it out and to make sure that that's called out because it shouldn't be blamed on groups that weren't responsible. I heard those reports, too, about possible yeah. Antifa infiltration. There have been reports that there were instigators. There is no evidence or proof. We also knew that there's always bad actors that will infiltrate large crowds. Instead of an attempt to over turn the election by radicalized Donald Trump supporters, it was a choreographed attack staged by Antifa provocateurs. Rather than an armed insurrection, it was a good-natured protest spoiled by a few troublemakers. And instead of a deadly event that put the lives of hundreds of lawmakers, police officers, and others at risk, the riot was no big deal at all. It's this last one that really drives me insane. What's the big deal? It was just a few broken windows. With all this razor wire around the uh, complex, uh, it reminds me of my last visit to Kabul. All of this is incredibly dangerous for a number of reasons. First and foremost, as shown by Trump's big election lie, there are millions of Americans ready to believe whatever is programmed to them by Fox News, Newsmax, and the vast right-wing media complex that churns out this crap on an industrial scale to an audience hungry to believe that they are siding with God himself. Three hundred years ago, he said, this will all happen, the Messiah will arrive, the end times will begin in the Jewish calendar year 5777. The rabbis have held that dear to them since then. What, what is that? That's 2016 to 2017. Messiah will arrive. Now, they're looking at Donald Trump. One of the rabbis illustrated how his name in the gematria, the numerology of his name, actually means Messiah. These are the same news outlets that reported that I committed suicide last week. I won't name the steaming shit pile that wrote this hokum, but they are a part of a larger ecosystem that sustains Trump's big lie and is now pushing these false narratives about January 6th. 
Then we have the lawmakers themselves, who either out of cowardice or pure filthy self-interest and fealty to Trump's MAGA base, continue to side with the former president and push this bullshit. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in, and he describes four different types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. At the top of scumbags like Josh Hawley, Ron Johnson, and Ted Cancun Cruz, who give a patina of officialdom to all these claims that what happened on January 6th was the work of Antifa, the Tooth Fairy, and the cast of fucking Friends. Didn't you see Chandler in the rotunda? Yeah, that's him. I'm serious. These fucking morons believe that whatever is printed and sent to them across their social media feeds. And they have been programmed to distrust actual, real news after being brainwashed by Trump and his proxies. We respect the law. We were good people. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens. And you guys did this to us. We want our country back. We are protesting for our freedom right now. That's the difference. So far, 320 people have been charged in the attack and federal prosecutors expect to file hundreds more. This is a massive, sprawling case and one that is crucial to countenance that I've described above. As such investigators are proceeding methodically to make sure that the charges stick and that they have receipts to prove it all. From Politico's reporting on this, quote, in a nine-page filing lodged in multiple cases Friday morning, U.S. attorneys handling cases stemming from the January 6th insurrection cited the rapidly growing roster of defendants and the enormous cache of evidence they must sift through to get a complete picture of the crimes committed that day. Court records show the size and scope. More than 900 search warrants have been executed in nearly all 50 states in Washington, D.C. And investigators have received a huge volume of material, including more than 15,000 hours of surveillance and police body camera video, 1,600 electronic devices, more than 80,000 reports of interviews with witnesses and suspects, and more than 210,000 tips from members of the public shows us that they're putting together the bricks of a conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Those bricks include anytime somebody agreed with another person to engage in something criminal. And that conspiracy already has been revealed to show the Oath Keepers leader who was in contact on a, on a two-way radio with many of the sort of central members of the Oath Keepers before, during, and after the siege. And while the investigation and arrest of these sick and violent extremists is a start, it should by no means spell the end. We have not yet reckoned with the role our own lawmakers played in both perpetuating the big lie as well as inciting the January 6th insurrection. Bober stoked this election rigging fantasy and on the day of the insurrection in Washington, she told her followers that that day was 1776. As insurrectionists stormed the Capitol, Boebert tweeted that House members were locked in their chambers, then tweeted that Speaker Nancy Pelosi, third in line of the presidency, uh, where that she had been removed from the chambers. This is the part that really pisses me the fuck off, that these bloviated, moralizing scumbags can sit there and pretend that any of this had a shred of validity is sickening and wrong. 
And if they are challenged to push, they hide behind Fox News and claim they're being punished or fucking canceled for their beliefs. It is an unbelievable attempt by big business, big tech, and the left to try to censor all dissent, to try to shut down all opposition, to try to silence half of America. But these aren't beliefs, they're fucking lies. They are lying to the American people and pretending it's something else entirely. These people, all of them, should lose the right to sit in Congress. The only person who seems to be doing anything about it is Democratic Representative Zoe Lofgren. Last week, she released a detailed examination of the social media accounts of Republican House members who voted to overturn the 2020 election results to analyze what role they may have played in inciting the insurrection. Chairman Lofton's report is a 2,000-page political opposition dossier put together at taxpayer expense. Think about that. Taxpayer dollars used to target fellow members of the United States Congress. Chairman Cullen went on television and accused without evidence... Congressman Boebert of helping criminals storm the Capitol without a bit of evidence. Other Democrats have filed frivolous resolutions to censor or expel Republican members. Like former President Donald Trump, any elected member of Congress who aided and abetted the insurrection or incited the attack seriously threatened a Democratic government, Lofgren wrote in the prologue to her 1,939-page social media review. They would have betrayed their oath of office and would be implicated in the same constitutional provision cited in the article of impeachment against Trump following the Capitol riot, she continued. The document lists members in alphabetical order by state and focuses on posts that either cast doubt on the election results or implore people to fight for Trump. Your booze mean nothing. I've seen what makes you cheer. At some point, I don't know if it's a month from now or a year or even a decade. We're going to wake up from this moment and peel back the curtain and these frauds will have to eventually answer to history that what they did was based upon self-interest and fear. Are these morons getting dumber or just louder? Dumber, sir. That they saw millions of willing participants in this charade who would give them money to continue lying, who would go and destroy the Capitol. It's powerful. But when is it going to stop? I fear this is what politics has become. The era of bipartisanship and respect has ended. This new breed watched and studied Donald Trump. They saw what worked and what didn't. They've made adjustments and it's truly frightening. He may be gone for the time being, but his mob is still out there and they're looking for the next messiah. Now when I was a young boy, at the age of five, And now for the main event. If you feel as if you're trapped between two realities at the moment, one where President Biden is putting into place an administration and legislation that seeks to put this country back on sane footing with some governance and competent leadership, and the other, where Republicans run amuck inside a religious cult and pine for the days when their Cheeto-dusted messiah whispered sweet lies into their ears, you are not alone. It is both comforting and maddening all at the same time. If I look forward, I am hopeful that we will get to a better place. But when I look backwards, those same people are still there, telling the same lies. How to make sense of this moment requires one to be a psychic, a psychiatrist, a government expert, a prosecutor, and a professor. 
Things are simply that complicated at the moment. The only person to whom I can think of to help sort out this incredible mess is the brilliant Norm Eisen, who qualifies as just about everything I just described. He joins me on mea culpa, having most recently served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee from 2019 to 2020 during former President Trump's first impeachment hearing. It was also when I first met the man. He was one of the few gracious and empathetic individuals, along with the Honorable Elijah Cummings and Eric Swalwell, who heeded my words when I said that Donald Trump will never leave willingly or allow for a peaceful transition of power. He has written dozens of scholarly articles for the Brookings Institute on the abuse of power in government and during the Obama administration served as a White House ethics czar. My point is not to read the man's resume, but to soak in his expertise and listen to someone who has not only sat at the very seat of American power, but also has thought deeply on how that power should be used and how it has been now abused. So let's listen now to that conversation. Now, one of the initiatives that you work closely with as outside counsel is the Bipartisan Voter Protection Program. Can you outline for me what was the most vital part of the program's focus and in what ways has it stressed or threatened on Election Day by those that wish to overturn the election? Uh, the Voter Protection Program was a new initiative uh, as stood up uh, before uh, the election uh, to deal with ex-President Trump and his, uh, what we believe to be his near certain refusal uh, to accept an election loss and leave the White House. And do you know the first person who warned me that Donald Trump would never leave the White House uh, uh, willingly, that there would have to be extensive litigation and a massive effort. And even then it would be very challenging. This person warned me when I was interviewing him as part of my duties on the House Judiciary Committee to investigate a possible impeachment. And do you know who that person was? Yeah, sometimes I look <laughs> at him every morning in the mirror, uh, sometimes happily, sometimes with disgust. Uh, I remember that day, Norm, like it was yesterday. We'll talk about that and, and how surprised I was uh, when I uh, met you and uh, and got to know you um, at the person I met. And you had already begun the path that led to this podcast, Maya Culpa. And I'm proud of you for what you're what you're doing to make right what was wrong. Um, but you warned me that day when I came to interview, I met him, interview you, I met you in New York, in New York. Donald Trump will not accede to a peaceful transition of power. And that we predicted as much, many others also. I did that analysis myself. And if you look at his career, you knew he was going to put up a fight. You could even have predicted the violence and the insurrection. So we stood up the voter protection program myself and a, a really a bipartisan cast of luminaries, our former GOP governor and Bush administration cabinet member, Christy Todd Whitman, uh, former uh, GOP official and governor Bill Weld, many, many others, both Democrats uh, and Republicans, Tom Ridge, former governor and cabinet member Tom Ridge, 
uh, and, and a wide array uh, of uh, Democrats as well, um, with my wonderful co-founder, Joanna Lidgate, as the number two uh, for uh, Attorney General Maura Healy in Massachusetts. Uh, Joanna came over to co-found and manage the voter protection program with me. And uh, we stood up a, a program of um, uh, legal activities, comms activities, supporting state uh, actors, and most of all, warning everybody. One of the first things we, we worked on was to make clear that uh, Trump was trying to break the post office so they couldn't return the mail-in ballots. That was in the summer before the election. People didn't want to believe it, Michael. We said this is for real. And so uh, we set up our uh, set up our, our program um, to warn people. And then when it happened, to push back. And thankfully, uh, we were successful in ultimately getting a, a transition of power. Sadly, it was not peaceful, as you warned. Yeah, and don't forget, I, I also warned it before the entire world when I testified before the late, great, honorable Elijah Cummings, when I stated emphatically, I just stated emphatically that under Donald Trump, if he loses the election, there will never be a peaceful transfer of power because I know the man. I know the beast right behind the sweep. I just know who he is. You know, it's funny because when you when you think about voter protection program, the notion that we even have to have something like this is crazy to me. Could you imagine that you have to get all of this intellect into a room bipartisan to sit down and to say, we need to figure out ways how to stop potential voter fraud? I mean, what country is this? This is, it reminds me so much of once I was sitting with Trump in his office. I'll never forget this. And we were talking about Vladimir Putin. And this goes back to when um, he could no longer run for president of the country. He basically assigned Medvedev to become president of the country, but made himself into yes. the prime minister, which superseded the president for the four years, right? And I remember telling Trump that I had heard a statement, which is, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And that's got to be sitting in his head right now, which is why he went after the people in Georgia, whether it's Raffensperger or others, in order to get the votes. Because he get, I guess it sunk into his fat head when I said to him, it does not matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. So if he was able to sway the Georgia electorate, right? Um, those that are counting the votes and responsible for the counting of the votes, he basically would be doing exactly what Putin does and in Michael, Russia. And Michael, that's why the um, tape recording, and this was part of the second impeachment, and it, it's now under criminal investigation in Georgia. I, I just have a new piece up with another one of my bipartisan colleagues, Don Ayer, who had very senior GOP jobs um, uh, in in the Justice Department under Republican presidents, was a U.S. attorney, very conservative. But he's a partner with me because he's broken with enablers in, in his party and uh, has uh, spoken out for justice. And Don and I have uh, explaining just how much jeopardy 
ex-president Trump is in, in, in because of that Georgia conversation. Can you just find, he says to the secretary of state of Georgia, and we have the recording. Can you just find um, 11,700 11,780 yeah. votes, which is one more than is needed to win the election for him. You can't do that in the United States of America. It puts him in very serious criminal jeopardy. People don't realize that's why Maya Culpa is going to be a uh, top 10 podcast for years to come, Michael, because there's going to be. Well, I appreciate that. We are really <laughs> doing well. We really are. Norm- we are doing well with a COVID vaccine bringing safety to millions it seems like there is light at the end of the tunnel, as well as a return to normal life. With all this in mind, why not take this moment to get your life in order by protecting your family with life insurance? Policy Genius can help you compare top insurers in one place and save 50% or more. Once you find your best option, the Policy Genius team will set up your new policy for you and answer any questions you have along the way. Here's how you can get started. First, Head to PolicyGenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare policies from as little as $15 a month. You might even be eligible to skip the in-person medical exam. Since their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance company, there's zero hassle. If you hit any speed bumps during the application process, Policy Genius will take care of everything. It's that kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. The best part? All the benefits of Policy Genius, the comparison tool, the handling of paperwork, the unbiased advice, they're all totally free to use. So while you're tidying up around the house this spring, why not get your life insurance organized too? You can save 50% or more by comparing quotes and feel good knowing that if something happens, your loved ones will be taken care of. Go to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. But, you know, since we're talking about legal jeopardies, right, in a March 5th appearance on CNN to discuss how Representative Eric Swalwell, who actually really treated me very well when I was up there on the Hill, that Eric Swalwell's lawsuit against former President Trump is just the beginning of what will likely be many more to come. Can you unpack for my listeners who is behind the Swalwell lawsuit and what your prognosis is of its success? Do you believe that the discovery process in these suits will eventually release more damning information? I'll take those questions in order. Uh, Congressman Swalwell, of course, is one of the um, great uh, pathbreakers. Um, he's really out front in seeing the threat and the danger. And he's done that with his January 6th insurrection lawsuit, where he says Donald Trump and others engaged in a conspiracy to interfere with Congressman Swalwell's rights and the rights of others uh, to count the and certify uh, the electors on January 6th. And he points out that that, uh, including Trump's words inciting insurrection earlier that day when he sent the mob to attack the Capitol, um, that those those words are a violation of um, uh, civil rights statute section 1985, which uh, prohibits violent, uh, in essence, violent interference with the government. 
And he's brought a bunch of other claims. He's got an all-star cast of uh, lawyers who are backing him uh, here in Washington, D.C., uh, a number of them old friends of mine. Um, and, you know, they're going to bring uh, Donald Trump to justice. Uh, I think that the that that lawsuit and a companion case uh, brought by Congressman Benny Thompson uh, in front of a wonderful judge, Amit Mehta, uh, and as I uh, write in the Washington Post this week, they're going to get past, I believe, the preliminary motions, and they're going to get into discovery. And to answer your question, yes, they're going to get a hold of emails uh, and other evidence. And I believe, based on the evidence that we have, that they're going to find much, much more White House involvement than we already know. We have some indications when they really get into it, they're going to, I think, discover more information. But we'll see when they get into discovery. You know, the biggest problem that I find is um, the FOIA system. So there, I mean, it's amazing to me that with my case, with the remand back to prison, we put in a request five months ago to the FOIA office, to the BOP. Now, of course, I want to be very careful in what I say. That was under the old administration when nobody felt that they had to do anything if it was going to be detrimental to the Trump administration. Now under Merrick Garland, who's going to run the DOJ the way that it's supposed to be run, which is as an institution to, you know, not to protect the president, but to protect the United States of America and its citizens, then I think that we'll finally get some responses. But it was amazing because they just sent me 58 pages after five months whereby the judge who looked at the FOIA request acknowledged that I'm supposed to be on an expedited mm -hmm. basis. Interestingly enough, not one page of that 58-page FOIA request was responsive to my, to my FOIA request. Not one page was responsive. So I think that this, it's going to take its time, but hopefully now that we have an administration that's not corrupt, an administration that's not weaponizing the Department of Justice for their own protection. My hope is that all of this information comes out. And I'm going to tell you why. Because for me, I lived in Washington for four years, from 1984 to 88, and I worked in the Capitol. And I can tell you, when I see on television now what Washington, what D.C. looks like and the Capitol area looks like, I'm nauseated. It reminds me of FCI Otisville behind the fences, behind the gates with 3,000 plus guardsmen and, and you know, women and women. Right. Of course, it bothers me watching these patriots standing there instead of doing other things more important. Whoever in their wildest imagination thought that you would ever see an insurrection like this, not only an insurrection, but one that was caused by the president. I mean, I just find the whole thing absolutely nauseating. The uh, people who have studied him, and there are a few um, who have seen him up close uh, the way you have, and I don't think anybody who's seen him up close over a period of time as you have, who has gone public with it, uh, the people who have studied him have seen that from the beginning of his career, the president was pointing towards that moment on January 6th when he incited a violent insurrection to hang on to power. And so that does not come as a surprise. I have to tell you that I've worked on 
FOIA for many years under battling at, at, at the watchdog group that I started, CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. You'll find CREW is um, in the caption, they're in the name of many of the um, landmark DC legal precedents about the FOIA because we battle on FOIA. And then I was responsible to some extent for it inside government, uh, Michael, because when I went to work for President Obama uh, in the White House in 2009 as the so-called ethics czar, one of my duties was to oversee FOIA. And do you know, uh, it's very challenging, even with a new, and, and President Obama was very forward-leaning. He told everybody to to the whole government to do a better job of complying with FOIA. It's still very challenging. There's the culture of secrecy in government. Um, I've just written a new report called uh, If It's Broke, Fix It, about the things that in the wave uh, wake of Trump, after Trump, we have to do to improve government. And one of them is to get FOIA, make FOIA compliance better. So that's a challenge under every administration. Well, good, because maybe I'll call you. You'll help me to figure out how to get some of these documents, because what I want to show is who was involved in the conversation that Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein determined was retaliatory against me by Bill Barr and Donald Trump for refusing not to publish a book that was going to be critical against Donald Trump, um, my book, Disloyal. And it's amazing to me because what they told me at the FOIA office, they don't think that there are any documents. They think that the remand a constitutional violation was done via phone. That this guy, Adam Pakula from the Department of Corrections, spoke to this guy, Patrick McFarland, who's an RRM at Metropolitan Detention. And they then spoke to somebody um, up in the Maynard office who then spoke to somebody. But all this was done by phone. Seriously, you're going to remand somebody back to prison and violate their constitutional rights? And you're going to do it by a phone call? I don't know. I'm, I'm just confused by the whole system. But Norm, last weekend, the first actual Trump administration appointee was arrested. And to me, it represents how the riot has now literally reached inside the White House. Now, many people are downplaying the whole thing and saying that he was just a lowly assistant. What other shoes do you believe will drop in terms of official administration involvement in these insurrection events? Well, um, that's... Uh uh, Fred Klein, that you're referring to, of course, who was a State Department aide under ex-President Trump, and in fact, even more ominously, had top secret clearance uh, in the Trump administration, and yet would 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 sink so low as to be allegedly to be part of a violent insurrection. Um, I think that um, if you look at the evidence, uh, Mr. Klein is probably not the last person uh, associated with Donald Trump who is going to be the focus of criminal investigation of possible charges. And I think that, uh, as I've just written in my new post piece this week, I think that uh, with Don Air, so it's it's bipartisan, we think that there's a much more likely criminal jeopardy as soon as this year, Michael, uh, for the ex-president himself. And um, the country has not fully grappled with the prospect of Donald Trump being in 
the criminal doc being put on trial in front of a jury in either Manhattan, uh, in Fulton County, Georgia, or both. And of course, Manhattan, uh, those um, are the issues about tax fraud, insurance fraud, uh, bank fraud, books and records fraud, um, and, and other matters that the Manhattan DA has been investigating. And then the Georgia matter, which really grows out of the, the uh, uh, the president doing what you said he would do, refusing to accede to the peaceful transition of power. And sadly, he got his wish. The transition was not peaceful. Can you imagine if Raffensperger had done what we heard ex-president Trump ask for on that tape to, quote, just find 11,780 votes? I mean, it would have been an explosion if one of the states had flipped, it would have made the insurrection far, far worse. Sure. Could you imagine? Could you imagine, Norm, if it was somebody like Jim Jordan or somebody like a Lindsey Graham or a Ted Cruz, if it was their state and they were the ones that were responsible in order to do the right thing? Yeah, the entire election would have gone differently. Donald Trump would probably still be president. Instead of working for the people, he would be working how to figure out how to continue to be president, not just for another four years, but for life. He would want to become like Vladimir Putin or other autocrats, and he would basically be stepping all over our democracy and shredding our constitution. People do not appreciate what a close election this was. If 22,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin had flipped. If 22,000 people, the margin added up in those three states is 44,000. That means if just 22,000 people had chosen Trump instead of Biden, if they had flipped their vote, that would have flipped this election. And Trump was working like a fiend and all his enablers around him to try to make that happen. That's why that Georgia call is so important. That was an effort to flip the first of those states. He was applying pressure in Arizona. He was applying pressure in Wisconsin and Giuliani and the others around him. That was an attempted uh, coup. Let's face it. It was a coup that they wanted to do by abusing the rule of law. But it was predictable that it would lead to insurrection. It was an attempted insurrection. Uh, we scholars of, of these matters call what Trump was trying to do a self-coup. Uh, he himself was trying, rather than having the armed forces do it, he came very, very close, Michael, if it weren't for about 20 courageous Republicans. It's not a partisan thing. Starting with the three justices on, on the Supreme Court, that that um, were Donald Trump's choices to go on there, that he really thought that crazy, there's a Yiddish term, flashugana, or meshugana, uh, they mean insane. There was a crazy lawsuit that the attorneys general, I, these are the people who are supposed to be in charge of enforcing the law. And they went along with Trump. The state Republican attorneys general filed this absolutely absurd lawsuit. But fortunately, those three Supreme Court justices refused to go along with it. And around the country, about 17 other Republicans, whether it's the governors like Camp, the secretaries like Raffensperger, 
and less well-known people like Aaron Van Langeveld, the member of the Michigan State Canvassing Board. They were trying to do the same thing in Michigan. He's a Republican. Now he's been uh, he's no longer going to serve on that board because his Trump loyalists um, in Michigan were very angry at what happened. But he said, no, there's no basis not to certify this election. So there was a full on there was a full on insurrection that was attempted, legal and violent alike. Right. But 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 the GOP doesn't stop there. I mean, for example, you know, with the draconian voter suppression legislation that's being rolled out in states like Georgia and Arizona, we're witnessing efforts now to disenfranchise voters unseen since Jim Crow. Now, how much of this efforts do you, Norm, believe to be the work of the GOP legislators in those states, in essence, trying to rig the game for themselves in the face of changing demographics and their inability to compete on a message of white identity politics? There's no question that what what you're seeing in this wave, uh, 253 bills in 43 states across the country, is an effort to frustrate the basic functioning, the most basic pillar of our democratic republic, Michael, and that is that uh, the people are sovereign and the people use elections to choose voters, choose their representatives, not representatives choosing their voters, as would happen with these bills, which are pushing many voters to the side. And there's no doubt that there's a racial element to it that it that it's a new form of Jim Crow. And when you add this this tsunami of voter suppression around the country together, uh just the the size of it, I don't think we've seen anything like it in decades. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say it is the new Jim Crow. As you know, I write a lot. I wrote with attorneys general Brian Frosch of Maryland and um and Carl Racine of D.C. and Politico this week explaining this. And there is a solution. We need to pass federal legislation to stop it. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. That's the only way we're going to be able to fully roll it back. Although there's a bunch of other stuff we need, we need to do as well. And we have to push back with every peaceful legal method we have in all of these 43 states to stop it because it's just terrible. With the tax deadline approaching, it's important to take steps to avoid being a victim of tax scams. Cyber criminals have used social security numbers to file fake tax returns in an attempt to steal refunds. File early and be aware of suspicious activities related to your return. You put your information in so many places online. Unfortunately, cyber criminals keep finding new ways to steal identities. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. I've been using LifeLock for a while, and it has given me peace of mind from prying eyes. Here are some of the features. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, no one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. Sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to norton.com Cohen. 
That's 25% off at Norton.com slash Cohen. Hey, Norm, is there one bill in particular that stands out as more egregious than the rest uh, in its intent? If you look at the legislation that is moving in uh, in Georgia, I think that 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 really is um, that really is the worst of it. And I misspoke my op-ed this week w- with uh, the attorneys general was in USA Today not political. Um, and, and in that op-ed, um, we write about the Georgia legislation. Um, there's SB 241, which would end equal opportunity mail-in voting and add needless and very restrictive witness requirements. Last week, uh, a lawyer for one of the GOP state parties was arguing at the Supreme Court and talking about the legal framework. And he was very honest about um, about it. He said, it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. And that's what this is about. It's trying, that should not be our approach to voting, is to, you know, to say we're going to try to suppress one party's votes in my voter protection program. It's bipartisan, so I'm accountable to a bunch of folks who came up through Republican politics and who are still proudly conservative. Our point when we were doing all of our stuff, we didn't know who was going to win the November election when we started doing work around the mail-in voting. The goal was just to have every American vote be fairly cast and counted. That's all. And so to discriminate against one party, and then you have, you know, another one of the bills that is trying to block things um, that is House Bill 531, uh, things that are very explicitly tailored at, at Black uh, voting access. So it would have a um, disproportionate uh, effect. It's clear when you look at the statistics. So there's the racial elements as well. So I would point to the Georgia uh, package, uh, Georgia Senate Bill 241 and House Bill 531 as being among the most egregious in the country. So then let me ask you this. At CPAC, we saw the continual repeat of the big lie about the election from the former president, from Josh Hawley, and again from a guy who I think is just a total asshole, Ted Cruz. (laughs) Now, beyond fealty to the base, uh, who they can rally behind as, you know, a common cause, why else are they continually returning to the big lie? Uh, uh, the it serves the big lie serves a number uh, of purposes, as you point out. It does. Um, it it is red meat for the base. Um, it's the core of ex President Trump's your former clients' uh, narrative now, which is not just for him; it's for his followers the tens of millions who are still left about how they were illegitimately deprived uh, of, of their quote, their white house of their power. And so, you know, it's part of, as you know, Donald Trump, one of the reasons that he's been able to uh, have the enduring career that he has, that he was able to con his way into the white house. And he's still conning these people out of millions and millions of dollars. He's milking them for cash is because he's a good storyteller and he's able to construct these narratives. So it's a powerful narrative propelling them forward. 
And the Hollies and the Cruises of the world know that those tens of millions of Trump followers are powerful forces in primaries. So they want to co-opt them. Those are some of the additional reasons. And it delegitimizes, you know, it's a way to attack instead of the unity and the bipartisanship that our nation needs that we've tried to build in uh, my org, the Voter Protection Program, the VPP. Um, instead of that uh, common purpose uh, to attack uh, uh, all uh, legitimacy of the new administration, and Michael, even Republicans who dared to dissent, you really were one of the first to publicly break with the president. And, and I give you all credit for not going the way of a poll. E- you, mean the, you, mean the, you mean the easy route. You know, the easy route was to, but if I would have kept my mouth shut, chances are um, I would at this point in time have been given a pardon, just like the Roger Stones or the Paul Manaforts or any of these others. There's, little There's no doubt. doubt. But you know what? It didn't work for me. Yeah, it didn't work for me, and I wasn't going to do it. But I do want to ask you this, Norm. Do you think that, since we're talking about taking responsibility right yeah. here on Mea Culpa, do you think some of these senators who voted to acquit the president and who refused to certify the vote will ever, and I mean ever, look back at their behavior a decade from now or farther and finally come clean that they were actually acting purely either out of self-preservation or fear of Donald Trump's base and ultimately admit, ultimately admit that this is all a giant pile of bullshit? Or that they'll continue with the big lie. Because how long will this have to, how long is this going to even hold? It's actually driving me insane when I sit there and I watch these people, you know, they, they, they get all yeah. high and mighty. They start stamping their hand that blah, blah, like Lindsey Graham has cost me now almost three television sets at throwing things at it. I can't well. stand his fucking face when he starts opening his mouth. It drives me crazy because I know. I know the Lindsey Grahams of the world. I was around them during the time with Trump, even pre-Trump as president. They're full of shit. They lie like they, like you breathe, just like Trump. And now they're piggybacking off of Donald Trump's worst attributes and his worst traits for their own self-preservation, for money, for whatever it is. You think these son of a bitches will ever come clean? It's a rare uh, media appearance when I'm the calm one, Michael. So you've really cast me into a very favorable light with your strong feelings. Uh, (laughs) So that's number one. Number two, um, I'm going to, this is, you know, you were passionate when you were a defender of Trump and when, when you were his attack dog, and you were. And you've been passionate in making your mea culpa. Now you're very passionate in your criticisms. And I should say that I, uh, 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 two things. One is I do believe that you will see a form of repentance. There will be other mea culpas. You saw some of that even in the, you saw some of that even in, if you look at the difference between the, the one vote we got to convict on the first impeachment that I worked on and that, that you were a witness, uh, you helped with. We included your testimony and your information in the record um, of that first impeachment. And the second impeachment was seven times more successful. We got seven Republicans who voted, and that's a form of mea culpa. 
I will say that I, and this is, this, this is gonna, um, this may be too, too big of a jump for you, but I am very inspired, as you know. I mean, this is one of the things, um, that you and I laugh about, uh, the claims that you are in Prague. Every, because I was ambassador in Prague, every journalistic organization in the world called me at the time before the election to quietly ask, hey, is there any proof Michael was in Prague? How could we prove that? And the closest you ever came to Prague was when when I met you that first time when I came uh, to New York to talk to you as part of the early, early days of the impeachment investigation, as you were getting ready to, to report uh, to... Uh, prison and to do your time. Uh, we wanted to talk in person. Um, we met in the Dvorak room of the Czech uh, Cultural Society in New York. And you said to me, this is the closest I've ever been to Prague. Why do they keep, why do they keep saying I was in Prague? And we laughed about that. Um, I want to, I want to say that I don't, I try not to throw things at the TV and I try not to feel that anger because there's a proud tradition. So I'm talking about Prague. I learned it from the late president Havel. The more effective we about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, HR four, I think we need to, we need to approach the Lindsey Graham's and what he's become breaks my heart because I used to deeply admire him. I'm a protege of Senator Joe Lieberman, and I was the beneficiary of uh, a lot of support by Senator John McCain. And of course, Senator Graham was the third of the three amigos. And um, I would often uh, talk to him. And, you know, that's a very um, painful thing. And I think we need to learn from Havel, John Lewis, and Martin Luther King, and we need to approach these terrible, terrible, he is an adversary of our democracy. I don't begrudge you because I didn't have to go to prison camp. So, and you're still um, dealing with the consequences of the, of, of the bad choices you made, but also of this corrupt system and led by the corrupter in chief ex-president Trump. So you're entitled to have your strong feelings for me. I think we have to approach it like civil disobedience. How are we going to deal with this? And it's not just the leaders, Michael, it's the followers. How are we going to deal with these 10 million, tens of millions of people who believe this baloney starting with the big lie? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I tried to keep talking about it on this show, on television, in the media, so that people understand exactly who Donald Trump is. And yes, I did promote and push Donald Trump to run for the presidency. I am the Dr. Frankenstein in that case. But if you take a look, and we talked about this when we were together, about what were the crimes that I was charged with. Yes, I lied to Congress. I did. But do you remember what the lie was? It was the number of times that I spoke to Trump about a failed real estate project in Moscow. Now, yeah, I probably shouldn't have lied, but as I've stated, I lied at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. Did I pay the hush money on behalf of Trump for Stormy Daniels? Yes. And I did it again at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump and how I'm the only one who goes to prison for these really tic-tac type of, you know, crimes. You know, the other stuff is just all bullshit. Tax evasion never happened. 
the misrepresentation to a bank never happened, but they had to pack it on. And I'm 100% certain that eventually with FOIA, with the request, I'll get all the documents that explain why they did that and so on. But that's for another day and for another podcast. I, I do want to ask you because I was a little bit confused on something. I was reading this March 8th bulletin for the voter protection program. And it had this small item about how ex-wives had become a key component in the search for those who rioted <laughs> at the Capitol on January 6th. Can you do me a favor? Because I'm married 26 years. And because, now I wasn't there, but Don't I'm not getting it. rid of my wife anyway. Can you unpack that for me for a bit? Because yes, I'm a little bit um, confused. One of the one of the beautiful things that crisis teaches us is who our real friends are. And your family, you and your family have had a very painful road. But your family has stuck by you. And, and I know because because you and I talk, I know how challenging that has been. But God bless your wife. She's been loyal and your kids loyal. Uh, and 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 they've accepted your mea culpa and they stand by their dad. Um, these ex-wives, however, that's another matter. And they have been turning in their ex-husbands who were part of the insurrection. They recognize them. They know their social media. They know the other footprints. Um, they see the faces. And so they've been a very critical component. And, and I think that people have been, and it's not just the ex-wives. Um, our editor used that uh, tagline uh, to get people to uh, pay attention to this very serious matter. But the good part of this insurrection is how many Americans have said, hey, um, you know, I recognize that person. I've called the FBI and said, I know who this insurrectionist was. Because those folks, if we don't get them uh, and uh, uh, hold them accountable, they're going to be a continuing danger to commit violence, Michael. And so, um, you know, the good side of, of what happened, there's a lot of terrible things about the Trump administration, a lot of terrible things that January 6th was the low point, And there was a lot of bad stuff that happened before that. And, you know, Robert Mueller writes about the ways that uh, Donald Trump uh, turned to witness intimidation against you. And you were far from the only person who felt his bullying and intimidation and the, the full weight of that power. He also writes about how he dangled uh, preferential treatment like the pardons that uh, Manafort ultimately got and others, Stone, Bannon. The uh, But we got to hold these people accountable or there'll be more violence. So the ex-wives have been very, very important in telling the FBI, hey, I recognize um, uh, my ex-husband. And, uh, and, and that's a good thing. And here he is. And I hope you destroy his life. Now, you recently wrote an op-ed for CNN calling for, and I quote, democracy reconciliation in the face of the GOP's opposition to reform-minded measures in both the COVID relief bill and the new Voter Protection Act. Can you help my listeners understand what you mean by the term democracy reconciliation as it relates to the filibuster? Uh, yes. Um, the... Um you know, as we've talked about, in order to deal with this huge tidal wave of voter suppression uh, legislation, 253 bills in 43 states. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. You need to deal with that in the states, but you also need federal legislation that establishes, reestablishes basic voting rights. And, and one has passed now the House, H.R. 1, the Fourth of the People Act, 
that would do things uh, like establish uh, standards for voter registration uh, around the country, make it easier for people uh, to vote. Uh, Everybody should be able to vote early. We should have more security. Uh, We need to deal with campaign finance issues, ethics issues, a bunch of very good things in that bill. The problem is if you have just 41 uh, Republican uh, senators, if you can't break a filibuster, you need to get uh, past the, um, you need 60 senators who will agree to move a bill in the Senate. It's, it's not very democratic instead of doing it by a majority because of the filibuster rules. So what I proposed in CNN with my co-authors was that we have, and again, bipartisan, I wrote that package with Richard Painter, uh, who was uh, Bush's uh, ethics guru in the White House, the role I performed for Obama, uh, with the ta- and on with another talented lawyer in Wisconsin, Jeff Mandel. The three of us argue we have a thing already that allows for majority votes on budget and fiscal passages, packages. It's called reconciliation. It's how we move the big COVID relief bill that Biden has uh, is going to sign into law this week. Uh, why not have a parallel 51 vote threshold for one other very fundamental, just like fiscal matters are very fundamental, but even more basic voting because it undergirds all our functioning of our democracy. That's how the people transfer their power to the uh, to their representatives in a democratic republic, have a 51 vote threshold for voting m- measures. And that would allow people to push back on this terrible voter suppression across the country. That's what I mean by democracy reconciliation. Got it. Well, let me switch gears for a quick second and go back to something we were talking about before, and that's Merrick Garland, right? What steps do you think he's going to have to take in order to repair the damage that's been done by Donald Trump and Bill Barr to the Department of Justice? And finally, do you see justice going back into Trump or will they punt to state and local courts? Um, well, um, I think it's right to let the, 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 the state prosecutors like Fannie Willis in Fulton County or uh, Cy Vance in Manhattan. I think it's right to let them have the first crack. Those investigations are more advanced, so they're going to move faster than the main justice investigation. I think that um, they have more independence, Michael. You know, people will not look at those and say, oh, um, that's Biden's Justice Department. That's Biden's AG that's prosecuting. You know, it's it's people who are not in Biden's chain of command. So I think that that is a plus. And those um, and those matters um, do make out very serious criminal allegations. Ultimately, it'll be up to the prosecutor to decide if there should be charges or not. Uh, but I think that the, the evidence is very, very serious. And of course, um, you're uh, more familiar than I am. You're one of the few people I ever talked to who knows the because I like to think I know the evidence pretty well. I wrote about it in my book, A Case for the American People. I write in that book about how surprised I was when, when, when I met you as you were beginning your process, your mea culpa process, which is a lifelong process um, of uh, making amends. Um, John Dean 
all these decades later, is still making amends uh, for what he did in Watergate. And I think John has persuaded everyone of the sincerity of that. And And I think people understand in this podcast, since this is our last question, I'll say that this podcast is a part of that on your part of making amends. You're one of the few people who knows those that evidence uh, better than the impeachment investigators. Uh, but those of us who worked on the first impeachment had to learn that evidence. And there's very, very troubling evidence. Just take the hush name. That's just the tip of the iceberg. So I think those state prosecutions um, can really can hold Trump accountable for some of the worst conduct uh, and do so in a way that is independent and removed from the administration and is fast. We shouldn't have to wait years and years for this to happen, which federal investigations are likely to do. So let's start in the states. Um, and, um, and, and I think we're gonna, maybe you'll have me back on the program when this happens, if not sooner. I think we're gonna see some pretty serious developments in those matters as the walls close in on ex-President Trump um, in the months ahead. You know, Norm, something that you may not know or remember, but when we worked together and we were sitting at the computer and we were going through some of the hot documents, one of the things that you said to me is what you appreciated about the hot documents that I was putting together was that they're conclusory, that you cannot argue with these documents. I don't know if you know this, but much of our conversation is why I provided so much documentary evidence to the House Oversight Committee hearing, because I knew the only thing that Trump and cohorts could do is try to impeach my credibility by calling me as Donald Trump so often did and his followers right they they come up with those monikers right <laughs> um what they call me uh they, they call me the convicted liar yeah. right when in essence yes i lied i did lie um but i lied at the direction of and for the benefit of donald trump here i knew and the republicans did exactly what i expected them to do not ask a single question about donald trump but rather denigrate me, disrespect me, attack my credibility, each and every one calling me a convicted liar. And I just sat there. In in essence, I was just laughing at them under my breath because of how stupid that they all looked and the fact that they cared more about appeasing Donald Trump and their own party than they did about getting to the truth. And it's funny because you also brought up the point about um, me not being in Prague in the Steele dossier What's interesting is that Steele dossier was the very beginning of my demise because for some reason the FBI took it. Then when the FBI realized after two days, because they're really, they're really great. Our law enforcement, I take my hat off to them. They, they knew within two days I had never been to Prague. Mm-hmm. I've never been to the Czech Republic. <laughs> I've never been to Russia, to Germany, none of that. So what did, what did they end up doing? They instead, they went ahead and they got a, um, a subpoena for a copy of my family's iCloud for my Gmail account and for my GPS locator on my phone to see who's calling in mm-hmm. and who's not. Then when they realize there's nothing there, they then ship it down to the Southern District of New York. And that's what my whole next second book um, is going to be about, really about the Department of Injustice and how if you get caught, you're screwed. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. And we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode. The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out last Thursday's episode with Stealing History, Roger Atwood, who will tell you how and where to find buried treasure and priceless antiquities. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the January 7th episode with Javier Pena and Steve Murphy, the former DEA agents who took down Pablo Escobar. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity, or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, I, I actually want to ask you something. Um, I read an article in the Times recently about this little-known policy magazine called Democracy Journal. And in it, in it, the Times says it has only 500 subscribers. And yet, Democracy, a journal of ideas, a 15-year-old quarterly run by three-person staff out of a small office blocks from the White House, may be one of the most influential publications (laughs) of the post-Trump era. Now, now here's a little fact for you, which I know you know. Six of Biden's 25 cabinet members mm-hmm. have published essays from its pages. Tell me why it's so influential. Yes, the uh, the because um, and we should never minimize this. It's it's the, the reason that America has been so successful in the world. Ideas are powerful and you don't need to have a big audience for a good idea. Once it gets, you got to get it into the bloodstream. And once it gets into the bloodstream, it will take hold. And the American, uh, that has been the story of America. And, 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 and our country has been powered by thousands and thousands of people, just like my friends, Ken Baer and Andre Cherney, who are the founding editors of Democracy Journal of Ideas. And they've put out a wonderful uh, wonderful content into the world. And those ideas have really taken hold. Uh, they've got a brilliant board and, uh, you know, and they've, they've put out good new policy ideas and that, that is what powers America. So, uh, bless them. They've done a wonderful thing and, uh, maybe they'll get a couple more subscribers out of your plug. I certainly hope so. I mean, six of his 25 cabinet members, right. Um, have published essays there. So it's, um, Clearly, it's impressive, and I will become at least 501. Good for you. Now, I also want to ask you, following Trump's impeachment acquittal in the Senate, you published an interesting op-ed on CNN that argued that the, and I quote, era of accountability has just begun. 
Can you discuss with me and my listeners what you meant by that and how you see this playing out over the months or the years? Now, also, what do you think needs to happen and what do you believe will actually happen? Well, um, I believe the era of accountability has begun because uh, ex-President Trump was very successful in using um, the power of his office to delay um, justice. But justice will not be denied. So now that he's out of office, you're seeing civil litigation that was slowed, um, speeding up uh, both the new cases, existing cases, and also these criminal cases we've talked about. So I believe that um, uh, Donald Trump uh, is going to face, and those around him, his enablers, are going to face their their moment uh, of of reckoning, and um, that will lie ahead on both the civil front, the criminal front, bar complaints, uh, uh, the very serious allegations against Rudy Giuliani and Sidney uh, Powell. Um, those uh, also um, are accelerating now. So for Trump and those around him, accountability is coming, civil, criminal, regulatory. And as we're now approaching the, you know, the hour, um, I just have really uh, one or two additional questions for you here. And I want to talk about enablers, right? We all know about the Rudy Giuliani's. We know about the Jim Jordans, the, the moronic Mark Meadows and the Josh Hawley's, right? And even, you know, um, you know, another half a dozen Ted Cruz's and so on. But I want to talk for a second about former White House physician Ronnie Jackson, right? And the allegation that he was essentially the White House Dr. Feelgood, handing out prescription pills to whoever asked for him, drinking on the job, and then a few things that I'm probably leaving out. Is this much ado about nothing? Or was this guy truly an out-of-control rogue operator who put people's lives in danger? The allegations and the evidence adduced uh, by the uh, inspector general are very serious ones. And um, the IG found um, that there was one occasion uh, where um, Dr. Jackson, now Congressman Jackson, um, uh, engaged in alcohol consumption uh, in violation of regs, um, found that uh, Ambien uh, was uh, used uh, in a way that was not appropriate. I, I think it's a very serious matter, and we haven't heard the end of it because the IG report has been referred uh, to the Pentagon for further investigation. Um, you know, the most serious thing that Dr. Jackson did to endanger the health of the country was he did not do an adequate uh, medical exam, including adequate cognitive assessment of President Trump when he gave his first medical report. And I wrote about it at the time with mental health professionals that Dr. Jackson's uh, report medically and particularly with respect to mental health was inadequate. So, uh and there's House ethics. He's, Dr. Jackson is continuing, Congressman Jackson now is continuing to deny what happened. So if his denials are not factual, if he's been dishonest, that creates House, house ethics rules. So we'll, it does seem serious, and we'll be hearing more about it. It's amazing that so many of these guys managed to escape House ethics, right? Whether it's um, Congressman Jackson, whether it's Matt Getz, whether it's any of the, I mean, they all behave in ways 
which ethics should either have them forced to resign, kicked out of office, or their own supporters, right, should now be walking away from them. But it doesn't seem like any of these people are being held accountable for any of this stuff. And, you know, just one last thing. What, how is it possible, for example, that going back to Bill Barr, that Bill Barr is not being held responsible under the ethics as it, as it relates to whether it was the remand of me the second time or how others, right, from the inception of the case, when my file was ultimately sent to the SDNY, when there was absolutely zero, zero information, right, that should have required it. How come nobody's looking into this? And if they did, right, how come nobody's being held responsible for weaponizing the Justice Department? Because Norm, you know this better than most people. When you have a president like a Donald Trump, and I've said this on my podcast, I've said it on television, my biggest fear is that another Donald Trump will come along. Yeah, that's the danger. Right? One who's a whole lot smarter, a whole lot richer, and a whole lot more sinister, right? What's going to happen when you take that individual who now has a roadmap, thanks to him, to weaponize the Justice Department, to basically weaponize American citizens to becoming his own homegrown militia to take over this country? I mean, people may think that sounds like a crazy science fiction type of a novel, but it's not. It's legitimately what we're living The reason that Barr has been able to dodge accountability so far, you can see that he knows where the line is. Uh, He's a lifelong practitioner of the law, and and he has been careful in his own conduct. And you can see that in his abandonment of the Trump administration right before the insurrection uh, so that he uh, wouldn't get sucked into some of that. I wrote about that at the time, that it was actually cowardly to leave and not to try to stop what was about to happen. So, you know, some will be able to escape accountability, and that is just the sad reality of the system. But for many others, as we've talked about, including the corrupter-in-chief, ex-President Trump himself, uh, accountability is coming. The walls are closing in, and um, and so we're going to see I believe, um, significant steps forward in that regard in this uh, coming year. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, Norm, and again, I want to thank you for your time, for your friendship. I want to thank you for all the good advice you've given me over the um, the years, and um, I definitely would love to have you back on the show as more things continue to progress, whether it's the New York DA, the AG, Georgia, District of Columbia, and the other multitude of cases that we were talking about on the show today. So again, Norman, let me thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been fascinating uh, to speak with you. There's uh, nobody who covers (laughs) these issues uh, who's been a part of it, as you have, and um, who's made amends and um, and it's just fascinating. I look forward to future conversations. The same. Thank you again, Norm. Thanks, Michael. And now for today's mea culpa. My conversation today with Norm Eisen brings me back to my testimony before the House Select Committee. That it has been two years boggles my mind. The time has gone both incredibly fast, but also incredibly slow. It remains one of the watershed moments in my life and something that I will never forget. 
But it was also the moment I first sounded the alarm to the American people about how dangerous a man Donald Trump was and what would continue to be. That I was proven right in all my prognostication around his refusal to leave office, I take no great joy. I'm not looking for bragging rights about the fact that I warned everybody that my former boss would attempt to destroy our democracy, but I must own this creation. So I will continue to warn everybody that we are not out of danger yet. Yes, the moment may have passed and the court stood their ground. Yes, we have a competent and decent moral person back in charge. But the monster is still there and he is hungry. When I created Donald Trump the political candidate, I awoke something inside him that was able to tap into the absolute worst of people's nature. He knew and will always know how to roil and control the mob. His power was always the base and their potential for violence. Well, guess what? It's still there. And while Donald Trump may be taking a break for a moment, the mob is waiting to be fed. Who will step up and take the reins and anoint themselves his successor is still anyone's guess. But my fear continues to be what happens when a smarter, more capable, less flawed, wealthier Donald Trump emerges to take the worst of these people's desires and drags them further into the abyss and then takes the country right there with them. I've seen it happen once. My struggle now, and what should be all of ours collectively, is to do everything possible to stop this from happening again. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer, Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my mea culpa. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Imagine 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, Survivor, and everything else from hit movies to binge-worthy TV shows, the latest news, live sports, comedy, and more. What are you waiting for? Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, and Fire TV and start streaming now. Pluto TV. Drop in, watch free. Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. 
Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot You spend the first hour of your vacation at the luggage carousel thinking there's nowhere to go but up. But there is a place to go but up. Because when you open your suitcase, you find it filled with dolls. Dolls like the ones in that movie that scared you so much you wet your girlfriend's bed. Ah, Marissa, the one that got away. You return the bag to the airport with relief. It lasts until you get back to your room, where a fallen doll waits to greet you. Don't let a suitcase full of dolls ruin your vacation. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.